choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Griffin, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 248 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 12, Moonwalk 1, Part 2, All Sep. Continuing from the previous episode, Pete Conrad had been walking on the moon for over half an hour, and Alan Bean had just climbed down the ladder and began his walk. According to the checklist, Bean was allowed five minutes to gain his balance and learn to walk. Bean was amazed at his new buoyancy, saying, You can jump up in the air. But Conrad wanted to press on, saying, Hustle, boy, hustle. We've got a lot of work to do. Conrad had one rule. Stay on the timeline. It was true that in their two moonwalks, the two men would spend more than seven hours outside, about three times the amount Armstrong and Aldrin had. But all of that time was packed with objectives, and Conrad did not want to fall behind. Hey, Al, did you find, did you find yours? Where is yours? Oh, there it is. I see it. Hello there. Where is it? Just look at the stand antenna and look up that way, straight up there. That's the best open Okay, now, where did we all agree was the best place to deploy this stand uh, out the right gear, huh? Yeah, go a bit further out. Right out in here is a good spot. Hey, I don't want to get too far away from the cable. It's right over right here. That's a good place. Okay. Point two words. That's what it says. Okay. I'm glad you didn't land back about 50 feet. That's what I'm saying, buddy. <laughs> hey, you can see some little shiny uh, glass or glass in these uh, rocks. Yeah, I reported that. Now, you can also see some pure glass if you look around. You can jump up in the air. Hustle, boy, hustle. we got a lot of work to do. I've got to do my stand for 55 minutes here. Conrad continued setting up an umbrella-shaped S-band antenna to improve communications with Earth. Then he called out to Bean, how about doing some useful work like getting that TV camera going? Okay, Bean answered brightly. Let's get that TV out and show everybody. Now, Sam, doing some useful work like getting that TV camera going. Okay, good idea. But... That didn't go as planned. While Bean was carrying the TV camera on its tripod away from the lunar module, he accidentally pointed it too close to the sun for a few long seconds. By the time Bean realized the mistake, it was too late. 
the moonscape on television in Houston and across the world had changed into a jumble of black and white shapes. Nothing being tried, not even rapping on the camera with his geology hammer, seemed to help. History's second moonwalk and Apollo 12's first had become a radio show. Okay, I've got it on focus at infinity. 
I've got the zoom at 30, 40 or 50, I'll put it at 75, and I got the f-stop at 22. Roger, Al, we copy. I've got it pointing exactly opposite of the sun here, so... Uh, Al, we see no change at all in the uh, scene. Why don't you just give it a little tap and maybe the color wheel will turn up. Hey, Al. Yep. Come over here. You're going to have to help me line up this antenna, all right? Houston, I'm going to leave the camera just pointed off in the distance. If you get any ideas, I'd be glad to work on it for you. Roger, I'll try and point it off uh, where you don't get any uh, reflectance into it, and uh, we'll be thinking about it here on the ground. Uh, the plug that runs right into the back of the TV is sort of a white plastic material, and it looks like it cracked and maybe been melted a little bit. It doesn't look uh, typical of that sort of connector. Even though this mission had turned into a radio show now, they still had Pete Conrad. So who really needed television? When Pete wasn't talking to Bean, he was talking to himself, or he was humming or laughing. In the midst of some task, he would suddenly cackle, and no one knew why. Except the backup crew, Dave Scott and Jim Irwin, who had arranged for a few additions to the cuff checklist. They had adorned the pages with cartoons of Conrad and Bean as Snoopy astronauts, just like the comic strip Beagle's spacefaring persona. But what really made Conrad laugh were the pinup pictures, reduced to about three inches square, annotated, of course, with proper geologic terminology, such as, don't forget to describe the protuberances. The funny thing was, there were a couple of mounds poking up from the undulating plain. The geologist had asked Pete to keep an eye out for unusual features, and here they were. They were a few hundred feet from the lunar module. Conrad made a mental note to get over and take a look at them, perhaps after the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package, or ALSEP, was set up. Leaving the TV camera problem for now, it was time to set up the science experiments. To announce their departure, Conrad told Houston, We're making our move, Houston. Bean lifted what looked like a strange square set of barbells and began walking west. The barbells were actually two pallets loaded with the Alsip's scientific instruments. There was a seismometer to measure moonquakes. It kind of looked like a silver paint can atop a round silver drop cloth. And there was a magnetometer to look for a lunar magnetic field. It had three gold foil-tipped arms reaching into the vacuum. There was another sensor to sniff out the moon's incredibly tenuous atmosphere. Then there was a small ion detection experiment with its ridiculously short legs joined by a spider web of wires used to search for ions in the moon's vicinity and analyze high-energy subatomic particles emanating from the sun. 
And there was the squat little solar wind spectrometer with its odd facets and bubbles. Each of these experiments would make incredibly sensitive measurements to probe the moon and the void around it. Then, to relay the ALSEPS data to Earth, there was a central transmitting station. Altogether, these experiments comprised the first full-fledged scientific station to be set up on another world. Bean planned to carry the ALSEPS several hundred feet from the lunar module, far enough so that the instruments would not be affected in any way by the dust kicked up when he and Conrad blasted off the next day. As he walked, Bean could feel his heart pounding with the effort to grip the bar with his stiff, pressurized gloves and hold the packages out in front of him. Finally, he said, I'm going to set this down and rest. Meanwhile, Conrad ran out ahead of him, scouting a good area to lay out the experiments. We're making our move, Houston. Ah, I can tell this is going to be a work mode. A bit of evening. How long did you say our shadow was? The lamp shadow? 150 feet? Stand by, Pete. In their two and one-half hours on the Sea of Tranquility, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had never ventured more than a couple hundred feet from their lander. Now, one hour and 48 minutes into Apollo 12's first moonwalk, Conrad and Bean were extending the reach of lunar exploration more than twice over. Finally, a suitable level place to set up the instruments was found about 500 feet from the lunar module. Bean couldn't count the number of times he and Conrad had practiced setting up the ALSEP on a simulated lunar surface behind the flight crew training building. To the unaccustomed eye, the experiments looked like strange, delicate creations. In truth, each was a engineering marvel built to withstand lunar heat and cold and to perform on a minimum of electrical power. 
and be small and lightweight to boot. Laying out the ALSEP wasn't the kind of work people expected an astronaut to be doing on the moon. It was more like arranging garden furniture than exploration. Undo bolts, set each experiment on the ground, tamp the dirt and make the instrument level, make sure each one is pointed in the proper direction with respect to the sun, and that each is a proper distance from each other. And keep them from getting dirty. That was the job, and as he worked, Bean felt pride of accomplishment. Here's a clip of the seismometer setup. Okay, Houston, the uh, acid seismic is down. The alignment is exactly 90 degrees. And I'm going to take a couple pictures of it here. Now, just on from that end, but Meanwhile, Conrad was a few yards away working on the central station. His white suit glowed in the sunlight, except from the knees down, where it looked as if it had been dragged through a coal bin. Here's a noisy clip of the central station setup. Central station up and uh, 90 degrees on the PSC nomen. Bean knew that Conrad was not immune to all. You had only to be in the same spacecraft with him orbiting the moon to realize this. He had talked constantly about the craters and mountains and lava formations and how amazing it all was. But the important thing was, it never slowed him down. He was always spring-loaded, ready for the next event. Around him, the ocean of storms stretched in all directions, an undulating plain that rose and fell with craters of every size. Surprisingly, if Bean didn't think about it, the moon didn't really seem like an otherworldly place. But if he looked high into the black sky, he saw the earth, and the sight of it was enough to bring home the electrifying realization of where he was. And he told himself, You don't have time now. You can think about this after the flight. But just now, things were going well. So, Bean began to deploy the magnetometer. Sure enough, right in the bottom of the craters, there is a lot more uh, 
Copy. Are you on your way out with the LSM? That's right. Got it right in hand. I'm out at the end of the line. And it's pouring the legs right now. The LSM is the lunar surface magnetometer, which will measure the moon's magnetic field. Roger. One antenna mast in place. Going back to the my favorite thing. Roger, Pete, copy antenna mast in place, and good luck. With the magnetometer deployed, Bean allowed himself a moment of fun. Removing a set of styrofoam packing blocks, he took one of them and gave it a sidearm fling, and it sailed into the distance for an impossibly long time, tumbling in slow motion against the black sky before landing. He took a second block and called out to Conrad, who was busy working. Look at that, Pete. What, said Pete. Watch this, said Bean. He made an underhanded toss of the block, and the white shape ascended on a long, lazy arc and hit the dust. Boing! Stop playing, Conrad laughed, and get to work. Bean replied, Come on, maybe they'll extend us until four and a half hours. I feel like I could stay out here all day. Look at that, dude. What? Hey, one of the fun things here is there's all these powerful packing blocks that uh, come off to, uh, that are put on here to uh, protect you during uh, shipment or uh, launch. When you uh, take them off and throw them, they really fail. true they could have handled a moonwalk twice as long as the three and one half hours allotted and that's what conrad would say in the debriefing when he was back on earth it took conrad and bean over an hour to set up the allsep when they were done it resembled an odd five-pointed star with the central station in the middle and the experiments radiating from it on bright orange ribbons of cable. They looked just like the ones in training, except for one problem. It was almost impossible to walk past an experiment without spraying dirt on it. In no time, the clean white surfaces were sprinkled with black powder. There wasn't any point in trying to wipe it off. That would only have grounded in. The astronauts were slightly amused at this, and they talked about it as they finished up the all-sep deployment. Bean said, I remember how they took care of this white paint. You had to have gloves to touch it, remember? Conrad laughed. 
Yeah, they got kind of a problem here. Bean decided there wasn't any point in worrying. Dirty or not, the experiments would just have to work. Finally, the ALSEP was laid out and ready, and Conrad activated the central station. At that moment, in a back room down the hall from Mission Control, scientists gathered excitedly around a set of chart recorders. On the tracing for the seismometer, they saw little squiggles and bumps. Not from moonquakes, but from Conrad's and Bean's footfalls as they headed away from the Allsep. Salutations from Alabama. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 248 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Apollo 12, Moonwalk 1, Part 2, All Sep. Hope you enjoyed the episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. In case you haven't noticed, I have added more episodes to the Archive podcast. We now have episodes 1 through 54 available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for Space Rocket History Archive. We'll try to get some more up next month with the goal of trying to catch up with the main RSS feed. So there won't be any gaps in there. Today, we salute my satellite emoji donors. These donors have donated for four years in a row, and they receive a satellite emoji next to their name on the donors page. Thank you, satellite donors, for your continued support. I really do enjoy giving out these longevity emojis. Next week, we will continue with Apollo 12's first moonwalk, and I also wanted to remind you to get your tang ready. I'm talking about the orange powdered drink that you mix with water. (laughs) Every 50 episodes, we have a little fun celebrating the accomplishment with the Tang Ceremony. And if you want to join in with that, make sure you get your Tang. Next week, it will be episode 249, so we should be celebrating the first week in April. Okay. I want to credit my sources for this episode, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Rocket Man by Nancy Conrad, the Apollo 12 Flight Journal, the Apollo 12 Lunar Surface Journal, and Apollo and Eyewitness Account by Alan Bean. I want to apologize for some of that poor quality audio, but I couldn't find a better source. Now, in the background of some of that audio, you may hear a telephone ringing. 
That was part of the clip. It wasn't me using my phone to call in. (laughs) In case you haven't noticed, I'm planning on taking my time covering these moonwalks because that's what we've been anticipating for a long, long time, and I think they should get their time in the spotlight. With that said, we will probably complete Moonwalk 1 next week. Well, Alan Bean accidentally pointed the TV camera at the sun, causing irreparable damage to it, which means no TV for the rest of the moonwalks. That was a very disappointing development. The TV networks were really not happy about that. They were all set to run the video, and now all they had was a radio show. And I'm sure it disappointed a lot of viewers at home as well. But I will say, NASA had not gotten the camera to the astronauts until three days before launch, and then they only received a brief how-to on how to use it. Perhaps some more training could be done to eliminate this problem in the next missions. Or simply have the astronauts put a lens cover on the camera before they move it. On the other hand, I can recall from Apollo 11 that Armstrong made a conscious effort not to point the camera at the sun. Well, anyway, Apollo 12 did get a lot of still pictures and they're very good. You know, sometimes the most interesting experiments are spur-of-the-moment stuff, such as Al tossing the styrofoam packing material and watching it fly. Just a little fun seeing how things work in one-sixth gravity and almost vacuum. That would have been fun to see on the video as well. I really wish we had a copy of that. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive four new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Craig R. from Michigan donated at the Orion level and earned his moon emoji. Alexander R. donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. Andrew F. from New Zealand donated at the Mercury level. And an anonymous donor pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our Patreon totals now are 162 with a goal of reaching 218 for 2018. And our overall donors have reached 218 with a goal of reaching 418. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. To support the podcast, it's very easy. Go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated in 2018, I certainly appreciate it. I have an item to give away this week. It is the official Space Rocket History logo vinyl refrigerator magnet. It has the picture of the official SRH logo with 
the Rockets. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. Then she put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number four, Jonathan Witten. Jonathan, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. I was pleased to see the podcast received six new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I want to sincerely thank those who gave the podcast the all-important five-star rating. I appreciate your taking the time to do that. Okay, that's all for this week. Hope to have episode 249 posted by next Thursday. Don't forget to get your tang. So long for now.